Welcome to Because You Need to Know, recorded live at the Cohen Multimedia Studio at Chautauqua Institution. I am Edwin K. Morse, President and Founder of Pioneer Knowledge Services. This series is your digital resource of valuable conversations with nonprofit and knowledge management enthusiasts from across industries and from around the globe. Today's guest is Professor Dave Snowden. Dave divides his time between two roles, founder, chief scientific officer of Cognitive Edge, and the founder and director of the Center for Applied Complexity at the University of Wales. His work is international in nature and covers government and industry, looking at complex issues relating to strategy, organizational decision-making, and decision-making. He has pioneered a science-based approach to organizations drawing on anthropology, neuroscience, and complex adaptive systems theory. He is a popular and passionate keynote speaker on a range of subjects and is well known for his pragmatic cynicism and iconoclastic style. Where's knowledge management going? Where, where is it going and why? Uh, it sort of keeps going regardless, I think. Um, <laughs> I, said about, I was with Larry Prusak in, in Malaysia, and somebody asked the same question. I said, well, kind of like it's dead, really, because it's no longer strategic. And Patrick Lamb, who doesn't believe that, said to Larry, do you agree with him? And Larry said, dead man walking. And Patrick didn't get the context. All right? <laughs> knowledge, when I first got involved in KM, it was strategic. You had chief knowledge officers on the board. You had people like Leif, Tom Stewart. And when you went to conferences, you had C-level executives. Mm. Yeah? You're now down to one conference every year in Washington, low-level IT people. It's become a subset of IT. Mm. Now, I think that doesn't mean that the need has gone away. But in effect, those of us who argued against codification and an overfocus on technology effectively lost. And we just got to realize we lost that battle. KM now means information management. Right. Yeah. Now, now, is that for the main consumer or do you think that's just the way it's going to fit in organizations? I think that's the way it fits in organizations. Yeah. But I think the agenda has moved into other areas. Hmm. So it was interesting. I started off in decision support. That's where I made my name and reputation, right? It became known as knowledge management. It's now known as decision support again. So I think the, the issue, and you've got things like, say, the work we're doing in what we call mass sense, either the deployment of human sensor networks for large-scale decision-making on civilian populations. That's a knowledge management function, but it wouldn't be called knowledge management anymore because it's a dynamic capability in which you deploy knowledge assets rather than a static capability in which you record information. It, it, it's, it's manifesting now under different names and functions. Where do organizations go to even find out if they need it? How would you even, why would you recommend to a nonprofit that is a small to mid that's like, well, I'm not sure if we need this? I think if you went down a knowledge management route and you employed a chief knowledge officer or a knowledge management person and sent them on a certification course and built a community of practice, you'd be wasting your money. Um, on the other hand, if you say, and let me give an example, we're doing work with the UN at the moment, with UNDP, right? Major not-for-profit. And one of the big issues they've got is how do they know what they know and how do they deploy it when requests for aid don't come in within traditional silos anymore? So what we're doing there is building a narrative-based knowledge search engine. Yeah? 
in which we gather all sorts of stories about what's worked or not worked in the past over multiple human agents, and this is into a quantitative framework. And we don't structure it any more than that. We leave it in that semi-structured state, which more naturally monitors the way the human brain recalls knowledge. And then we'll get people to tell stories about their need, multiple stories, multiple perspectives, and then we clam mash the databases together. So we find people in experiences which associate with the way people are talking about their problem. Now, that's a radically different approach to knowledge management than the keyword search, the taxonomy, the structured right, cases. Right, right, right. You're, you're, you're talking more of a, just a free flow, right? I mean, right. Is, it, is it somebody actually doing a, a, a structured, a little bit structured interview, or is it just tell no, us a story? It's actually free format, all right? The, the key thing we developed, and this originally came from DARPA work on counterterrorism, is we were there looking at how do we know when a civilian population is going to support terrorism? And that's a knowledge management issue. But so what we developed was what called self-ethnography self or distributed ethnography. So people tell stories and insert them into quantitative frameworks. So I've got a quant approach and a qual domain, which allows me to scale to very large volumes very quickly. But I don't structure it in advance because I don't know the nature of the query till the query comes in. Right. And the trouble is most traditional knowledge management is effectively codifying past practice. It's not responding to future need. Interesting. There's a famous quote by Polanyi who said, I always know more than I can say. Now, I extended that in one of my three rules of knowledge management to say we always know more than we can say and we will always say more than we can write down. The process of going from my head to my mouth to my hands, you know, from what I know to what I can speak to what I can write down, is a process of loss. This links it with Boisseau and knowledge assets as well. So one of the things Max Boisseau and I developed is the concept codified knowledge is very high abstraction, highly codified. It's like a map. Yeah. Purely abstract knowledge, yeah, so low abstraction, low codification is like a taxi driver or a bond dealer. And the trouble is these people have assumed that you can get rid of one and replace it with the other, and you can't. Mm. Whereas narrative is a halfway house. It carries enough ambiguity, but if you look at it, and I've done work with civil engineering companies, most of their knowledge is stored in stories, not in structured databases. And human beings have always taught through story. So that as a search mechanism is key. I mean, we deployed with the US Army into Afghanistan, for example. Company commander's stories told in real time were more valuable than patrol reports written at the end of the day. Ah. And the same is true for lessons learned. Your reflection on a company command, that structure uh, is a self-made. It was made by need, right? That that came up from the captains, not from the authoritative yeah, it actually came from people at West, Bank, West Point who I was working with who were concerned about young officers going into the field. But interestingly, and it's one of the other rules I developed for KM work, don't ask people to contribute 10 minutes of their time unless you give them an hour back. <laughs> and it's got to be tomorrow. Yeah, so most you can't. You don't want to just bank it and maybe someday use most it. Most right? employees, they just don't believe it. You know, put yeah. this out in now in three years' time, you'll get the benefit. Yeah. So by saying you don't have to write a patrol report, yeah, that's huge. Now, one of the things we're starting to work on with various development sector clients is a concept of field workers keeping continuous real-time notes in return for which they don't have to write a formal report. So is this uh, just a voice recording, voice to text? or Voice or picture or text or any combination thereof. So they have some creative liberty in this? Yeah, they do. So they can take a picture, write something down, record a thing. That's called a sense-making item. Then they rapidly interpret it into what's called high abstraction metadata, which is deliberately nonspecific. Yeah? That allows these associations. 
goes back to human. If you don't know it, art came before language in human evolution. So we naturally think in abstraction. So we reflect that. Then when you assemble knowledge, it's called conceptual blending in cognitive neuroscience. You do a partial data scan that stimulates multiple memories and you fuse them together, come up with a cause of action. So that's what we replicate. So what we're doing is building systems which replicate the way human beings evolve to make decisions. This sounds anti-bureaucratic. It is, completely. So it's a bureaucracy buster. You've, yeah. This is a bureaucracy. So, and and it, that's got to scare the hell out of bureaucracies. Well, no, because it gives them quantified data. In, in, it gives them better quant data. There's nothing wrong with bureaucracy, right? And if I've got quant data over multiple agents in real time, I've got better data than if I wait till people write reports, yeah? And we know that if people wait more than half an hour before they record something, they remember it differently anyway. So that's the massive problem with lessons learned is that it's always done yeah. after the fact. Well after the fact, not absolutely. The Years after, yes. I, mean, I talk about lessons learning, not lessons learned, because it needs to be a continuous real-time process. Well, and that reflects a, in a biological sense, that's an adaptive nature of survival, right? That... And I think there's then how you create, I mean, the other good thing is once you've got a human network, you can make decisions faster. So, for example, we present infographics to agents. So if I've got, say, 100 employees, I can present an infographic about a current situation to the 100 employees, get them to tell a story about what they think it means, a scenario about how they will develop an index, it, and I can do that in half an hour and present the results. So I'm generating interpretive knowledge in real time, mm -hmm. having built a network capable of responding. Mm -hmm. And real knowledge management, to my mind, is creating network for real-time response capability rather than codified information databases. Can you go into that a little more on the network? So you're okay, building so, in a natural response time. To so, the I, I, so I've got a bunch of guys, right? They're field workers. So they don't have to write weekly reports anymore because they're keeping continuous records, which makes their life easier. And allows me to integrate data across multiple agents in real time without the need to read the documents first. That's good news from my point of view. But I've now got a network is familiar. So a, re a crisis comes up. You know, we get an earthquake somewhere or we get a novel disease outbreak. And we use a lot in epidemiology on this. Yeah? I can then present how I understand the current situation, get everybody to add their own interpretation, their own scenario and index it. And I can draw what are called fitness landscapes from that. So I can identify majority and minority views. Say that again. Let me explain in a bit more detail. Okay. So if I've got 100, 200 people to respond. I can draw fitness landscapes, which look like contour maps, which show the dominant views, but they also show minority views. And we call this the 17% finder. This is from research, which is shown when radiologists are presented with x-rays. And on the final x-ray, you put a picture of a gorilla, which is 48 times the size of a cancer nodule. And you ask radiologists to detect anomalies. 83% don't see the gorilla, even though their eyes scan it. And the 17% come to believe they were wrong when they talked with the 83%. <laughs> and that's a universal, right? Yeah. So what we're doing is we're finding the people who are thinking differently at the problem mm -hmm. in real time. Now, again, that's a knowledge management system because it doesn't assume we can know in advance what we need to know, but it creates a multiply cognitive diverse capability to know what we need to know when we but need to know it. That begs the question then on the <laughs> HR side, on the onboarding and the selection of people who are gonna do the work, you have to have a level of awareness and cognition to begin with, correct? Actually, no, it's quite simple. We've done this with 
illiterate girls in Africa on genital mutilation. Yeah, storytelling and graphical interpretation is easy. That's People easy. get it fast. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it's tactile. And it's quite interesting. We look at the work we did with um, people who've been genetically mutilated, for example. When we represent their stories for indexing by experts in Washington or London, they don't index them the same way the girls index them. They index them differently. Now, there are three responses to that. Um, the legitimate one is, okay, we're different. Why? What does it mean? Because you're experts, so you're going to see it differently. The illegitimate ones are, oh, shit, why don't we index it the way we do it? That's just stupid. The really bad one, which is the most common one, is they don't understand their own stories. They've got it wrong. And that's a real issue in the development sector. I, I call it young white males trying to do good. Yeah, they, they, they want to do good so well, but they've got this deep ideological framing of problems. So it's a new form of neocolonialism. Yeah? Mm. And it's actually more scary because it doesn't allow contextually viable solutions to emerge because kind of like they've got their pre-given format. Like I once at a conference called it the John Travolta problem. Well, you have a natural disaster and people start to solve problems locally, then John Travolta arrives in his plane and everything goes wrong. Right? <laughs> and part of what we're doing with, say, with the International Red Cross and others is try to find ways to find those local stories yeah. of what works before the aid agencies apply. Yeah. And this question of creating more local context to solutions in the not-for-profit sector is key. And we just completed pioneering projects in Wales and Colombia, which are actually going to scale worldwide now. We're talking about that. In which we use children at the age of 16 as ethnographers into their communities every month. And we don't send in people from outside those communities. And then we use transgenerational pairing, so that's young people within their grandparents' generation, to come up with local interventions which will make a difference. And because they've gathered the stories in its quant, we've got an evidence base. Give me an example of what that yeah. in the, this two team member. Uh, okay. so we did we did in South Wales Valleys, all right? A chronically deprived area. Yeah, three or four generations of, pe of families without employment. Yeah, originally, yeah, it's not good fun, right? With all the epigenetic consequences for obesity and everything else. So what we did is we used kids there in the community centre and the local schools to go out and gather stories from the area which were self-interpreted. We then did the landscape maps and we identified a shift which was needed. This was done at a ministerial level. So kind of like you then ask this basic new new theory of change. What can we do tomorrow to create more stories like this and fewer stories like that? Everybody understands that. Asking how do we create a culture of legality or reduce drug use, nobody gets. More stories like this, fewer stories like that. Mm -hmm. We then had a self-facilitated workshop in which young people were taught to use the software if they brought somebody from their grandparents' generation to work with them. So the idealism of youth with the pragmatism of old age. And they came up with small interventions. The most effective was a bike park. I mean, people wanted grandiose schemes for improvement that would get the press. But the reality is, if you got the bike park by the pub, people would go to the pub at the weekend. The fire service had spotters for fire breaks. The kids had somewhere to go. There were so many ramifications of one small change. And the community already knew that. And one of the big problems with not-for-profit is people designing solutions for people rather than allowing people to design solutions for themselves. Hearing in the back of my head, Occam's razor, right? There's a, yeah. that it's a, it, it doesn't have to be so complicated, and we don't have to come up with those grandiose ideas if and we just listen. It's just colonialism, right? Because mm -hmm. the, the trouble is, the minute you, you come from a specific culture with a specific belief system, yeah, and I remember when you know, I left university or I, when I was working on Aboriginal land rights in Australia, 
and also auditing the refugee camps on the banks of what was then the Zimbabwe, right? Now, that was a harsh awakening because those cultures were radically different from anything I'd met before, yeah? And it was quite interesting. I had really bad experiences Saturday. So I was meant to be a keynote at a WHO conference in, in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. So I thought I had all the right visas and everything, but I arrived there. It turns out I didn't. So I get dumped on a plastic, plastic chair, and literally nine hours later, I'm taken away. I've had no food, no drink. I've had no idea what's going on. I'm an ethnic minority in a dominant group speaking a language in a bureaucracy. And I suddenly realized what it's like for people. Yeah, And that, that was a salutary experience on Saturday. I've logged about it. right? Um, because that's the reality of what we're doing to people. We're, we're, we're basically removing their agency and their own solution. We're making them dependency. So in your case of the bike path, was there any preload of go solve this problem or you just yeah, gave them the, the tools question to the community okay how do we create more stories like these and fewer stories like that they came up with an idea and that that's a democratizing question on change if you go to participative action research or workshops basically i mean there's a whole anthropological criticism of this they attract people who match the culture of the facilitators they don't match to catch the people we really need to talk with mm -hmm. so well, we're, we, we, I've been working on this for 15 years now. We're trying to remove any external facilitation from the process completely. Yeah. Because the minute you have external facilitation, you bias the results. Well, it's, that, it's a concept of the Petri dish, right? You don't want to contaminate yeah. the study. You just see what happens. But, but the agency is also critical. If I look at some of the work we're doing in health at the moment, for example, with patient journeys, where people are keeping diarized records of their own health journeys, which means we can, we can record their attitude to pain and empathy. We can account for a significant amount of the variation with people with the same physiological condition by the way they interpret their stories. But critically, by being able to tell a story which they know will go into a formal system, we increase their agency in their own pathway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's key. Agency is, agency is vital in this. That opens up the, the art of creativity. If a person knows they have ownership, then they're more creative, I would think. Yeah. And also, the, I mean, the other big idea here is the peer-to-peer -peer knowledge flow. So if I take my children's project in South Wales, we've also done that in Colombia when I started in Singapore. We've done it in Egypt. We've done it in Pakistan. We're now looking for external funding to make this for every school in the world. Because what I want is every child at the age of 16 gathering stories every month. And we know how to do that. We know how to scale it. We've proved it. Right. Now, if I've got that, I can kill the problem with the internet because I've now got a human buffer in the system. But I also allow peer-to-peer -peer knowledge flow because a kid can gather stories from, say, their mother doing farming somewhere in Ethiopia and say any more stories like this and find them from other areas all over the world. Hmm. So I don't need knowledge to be mediated by an agency. It can flow horizontally. Awesome. And, and that's, again, pre on the next, next generation of KM. Where do I sign up? Well, we're looking for cities to join. We're, we're packaging that up, but by the way, for cities and small countries and provinces, because they can make decisions. Yeah, big countries oh, can't. They, they have more liberty in that agency role. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the concept here is interesting. In Wales, where I come from, we, we're unique as a country, well, in many ways, and we've just beaten the English at rugby, so that makes me feel weird. <laughs> well. The most important thing in life is to beat the English, right? Um, but one of the things that we did a few years back is we created the Future Generations Act. 
So no laws can be passed unless they explicitly take into account the needs of the future generations. And we have a whole commission there to enforce that. Now we're working with them because this is part of that program. Sure. So to see the present and the future through the eyes of the future generation is critical on this. Yeah? Um, but it's got to be quant and it's got to be large volume. And you've got to avoid the, you know, young people's assemblies don't work because they're too idealistic. You need deeply pragmatism, which is why we use this transgenerational pairing, which is called, it's called well, I, I think I termed it. I think other people have picked it up. I called it the grandparent syndrome. Okay. syndrome. Grandparents will tell things to grandchildren. They won't tell to children and vice versa. And there are sound evolutionary reasons for that. Yeah, because actually grandparents have been the primary child carers for most of our evolutionary history. You haven't got anything to lose or gain. It's, it, there's actually a, a key on brain plasticity as well. Kids are very open, and when people pass 50s, they're very open. They're, they're quite closed between those periods. So over 50, it tends to be synthesis. Under 20, it tends to be inspiration. So you combine the two. Yeah. Wow. And again, yeah, again, that's taking a natural science approach to a social system. So we know this stuff from natural science, so we apply it. That sounds sensical. Why is so? <laughs> so with this sensical approach and your very pragmatic approach, where does the international standards that are just came out of KM fit? Do you see a fit, or is it? And I'm writing writing three thousand words on why they're a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was meant to be on that committee, and I eventually turned it down. I was on the first BSI committee um, for the first set of BSI standards to come out, and it's like a four- or five-year cycle. Mm. It's really, I think, to be quite honest, the reason the people who volunteer to do it are KM consultants, because they can use it on their CVs. And it's so anandine, it means nothing. And actually, to be quite honest, a lot of it is wrong, because it's coming from a systems... You know, the dominant way of thinking at the moment is a systems thinking, engineering, outcome-based target. Right. So it's not even up-to-date on knowledge management. So if people need it as a sinecure, fine, right? If they need it as a prop, fine. The only people who will take account of it are people who see KM as a bureaucracy and it's a tick box function. Yeah. 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 And I say the real work on KM isn't called that anymore. So is the is the prominent effort on your side just to lose and stop using KM as a terminology? Oh, I have to use the term. I've got one of, I think I've got the third highest reference paper ever in the history of km in complex i mean i've got a reputation in that yeah, yeah. i don't mind talking about it i just don't see it as strategic anymore i, I won't get a c-level audience not for profit or for profit if i want to talk about km if i talk about distributed decision support if i talk about managing complexity science which is my main field at the moment if i talk about you know understanding human sensor networks real time then i get an audience km i won't um, so I will ask, and this is the, the lightning round, what's your definition of KM? Oh, I've had many over the years, all right. Um, I think knowledge is the means by which we create information from data, which is in a direct opposition to that nonsensical data information knowledge wisdom pyramid. <laughs> if anybody takes about wis talks about wisdom management, they, take, they should be taken out and shot for their own. Right? <laughs> if you don't share knowledge, then information becomes data. So knowledge is the way that we filter data to create information. There's there's an element of action, right? There's got to be yeah, an I action. The other way I've often done it, I say the purpose of knowledge management, forget what it is, right? Yeah. Is to improve decision making or to create the conditions for innovation. And if you're doing anything other than those two, you're wasting your time. Well, thank you very much for being here today, Dave Snowden. It's been a blast. Real pleasure. 
Recorded live at the Cohen Multimedia Studio at Chautauqua Institution. Because You Need to Know is designed to bring people's experience and their knowledge forward to be shared. I'm Edwin K. Morris, and I thank you for joining in to listen to another conversation brought to you as a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services, a nonprofit tax exempt organization with a charitable knowledge management purpose. Find us online at pioneer-ks.org and add your voice to the conversation on Facebook.